to Conversations 360 podcasts and this podcast series called Asia and the West. I'm your host, Susan Bird. On Asia and the West, we showcase people whose life, work, and experience can shed light on what's taking place between these two critically important parts of our world. We're especially focused on China, but you'll hear from people with fascinating things to share about other parts of Asia as well. My conversations with these marvelous people take place often by phone across several time zones and sometimes in physical locations that present challenges in terms of our audio pickup. You'll occasionally hear background noises, evidence that these are not studio-based discussions, but unscripted, candid comments from people with lots to talk about, about the transformational changes taking place between Asia and the West. This next conversation is one of those. I'm with Edgar Kwan, Senior Executive Director and Chief Development Officer of the Marga Group. We're in a room at the Peninsula Hotel in New York early in the morning, and you'll hear sounds of people preparing breakfast in a nearby area. I think despite that possible uh, distraction, you'll find Edgar and his unique perspective on the world fascinating. Edgar and I met in Hong Kong. He has international experience in engineering, construction, and project management, facility management, and real estate development. He's led construction and development projects in China, Hong Kong, Southeast Asia, and the Middle East. And some of his highly acclaimed development projects include the Four Seasons Hotel in Shanghai, Centrum Residence in Beijing, I've heard many people talk about that, the World Trade Center in Bangkok. And he's contributed to infrastructure projects such as bridges and flyovers and oil depots for the Hong Kong government. He's active in a number of community organizations in Hong Kong, and he has a special interest in police work and anti-terrorism. Edgar has an interesting take on China's history of 200-year-long periods, which he says are characterized by drought and then by high achievement. Listen as he talks about China being at just the right point right now in this 200-year time frame to be reclaiming its superpower status. China is always, if you look at the history of 4,000 years, China has got a cycle. Always they will be a superpower for 600 and 700 years, and then they will, they will be very, very weak for the 200 years, and then they would come again in a cycle. The, the 200 years of trouble start around in 1800, and so it should end at year 2000. So China should be on the way up to, as, to resume as a superpower for the next 500 years. And listen as Edgar talks of the possibility that the world's many, many nations may eventually become combined down to just 10. We are now going to globalization or a global village, right? Eventually, uh, uh, eventually there may be only Right now, we've got more than 150 countries in the world. I think eventually the, whole, the, 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 the number may be reduced to 10. Like in China, we used to have a seven or eight, eight different countries, and then we united it together around 2,000 years ago in the, in the Chun Dynasty. Perhaps in 100 years, there will be no more Canada. Canada and the United States will combine together. On, in, in, in South America, the Spanish-speaking country and the Portuguese-speaking country, Portuguese country is only one Brazil. Perhaps all the other Spanish-speaking country will become one, become one country. We'll talk about these things and much, much more. 
So welcome to the Conversation 360 podcast, especially to this series called Asia and the West, Edgar. Good morning, <clears throat> Susan. Good to see you again. Great. I feel the same. So when we talk about conversations taking place in and between Asia and the West, what, what comes to mind? Well, I think Asia and the West, it is a very hot topic these days about the uh, East and the West, they should communicate. But in my opinion, if you look at history, Asia and the West have started a long time ago, more than 600 years ago. I think it has started in the Marco Polo days. And if you look at history, Macau, which is now part of China, used to be a colony of Portugal more than 500 years from now. You were actually born in Macau, Yes, I right? was born in Macau, yes. <clears throat> So I think that uh, in fact the East and the West, they start to communicate uh, uh, at least 600 years or 700 years uh, from now. Not, not from now, but in before, yes. And, and how has the dialogue shifted? That's a long time. In the last several decades, have you seen any kind of difference in the dialogue? Oh, in the last even decades, um, I think that um, the dialogue uh, is certainly uh, different from what has been carried out in a few hundred years ago. Because um, in the last two centuries, the West tend to colonize a great part of the world, including a, a large area in Southeast Asia, from Indochina to uh, Indonesia, Vietnam, Malaysia, and also partner, also China is part of the you know uh, country that has been, um, I would say that uh, uh, China was uh, under the a lot of the disadvantages due to the uh, colonial uh, concept. So basically. During the last 200 years, um, the communication or more or less would be one-sided. And then we have the Second World War. And then and after the war, I think the, the communications uh, between East and West was uh, more in-depth or more sophisticated compared with the past. More, more in-depth, more sophisticated. More, yes. Mm -hmm. And so, how accurate do you think the Chinese understanding of the West is? Oh, <laughs> that is a um, it's a good question. China, for his uh, four thousand years of history, always think himself, herself, as the uh, center of the world. So, <clears throat> because of the heavy the culture, so they do not think that the Western culture is a part of Chinese culture. Not on a par. Not on a par. They thought that, you know, the, uh, these foreign devils are way behind or way below us. Until in the last 200 years, where the, uh, on, on, on China's side, from the Ming Dynasty, they used to be a superpower, a technology country. 
but they decided to close the door. And then after Ming Dynasty closed the door, the West had this industrial revolution, and then in fact a technology device. Uh, it surpassed China to a great deal. So during the uh, late Qing Dynasty, that is in the 1800s, the Chinese, Chinese government, the Qing Dynasty government, saw that in fact Japan is learning from the West. And so China started to look outside again because China would admit whether openly or not openly that although you have a deep culture, but technology wise, you are, we are way behind the West. So they start to learn something from the West. Do you think Westerners appreciate and understand that history of China? Uh, yes, yeah, some of them do, but some of them do not. <laughs> Probably we could say the same about understanding our own history. Yes. Um, do you think that the Westerners have an accurate picture of what China is like today? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think so. Uh, the, well, it all depends on which uh, power, like America, England, or France, or other European countries, or Canada. I think due to their background, their culture, they all have a different interpretation on China. The real answer is getting them there and having them live, or at least <laughs> walk around and talk with people there, isn't it? We've talked about how important it is to have a true exchange of people. So let's talk about what's on the mind of many people who have an interest in China. I referred to the downturn in the Chinese economy, and you corrected me and said, no, I think of it more as a slowdown. So what is happening, and what's the impact? Uh, I'm not an economist. I just use a simple uh, logic. Like for the financial crisis in 2008, the problem with China and in the West, they face a financial problem, but the nature are different. In the West, the demand, domestic demand, is much greater than the domestic supply of services and goods. In China, it is the other way around. The domestic demand is little compared with the domestic uh, supply. So between these two therefore, certainly, I would certainly choose the, the Chinese way because when your demand is less than your ability to produce, you just uh, try to uh, rearrange the resources. Like, if the two people, for example, the, uh, in, America, in, in, the, in the Western country, their domestic demand is for 10 motor cars, whereas their supply can only produce three. Those seven of them would be imported from Asia, from Japan or from China. China is the other way around, Japan is the other way around. So for, as far as the Asian country, for some of China is concerned, well, that's easy. Just give more cars to the farmers. <laughs> but certainly, it is not an easy task. But basically, it is not as great as a problem compared 
on this supply and demand side. So with this slowdown, because we know that the economy has in fact <laughs> slowed to some extent, although mm -hmm. it is a very impressive um, uh, revenue stream in any event or economic stream, what about the individuals in China? We know that people born there in the last 30 years have been living in a country where they've seen nothing but growth and pretty exponential growth. So is there any change? Are they concerned at all about where China is going? Do they have, are they nervous about it? What, what do you see? Uh, well, first of all, I don't live in China. So I, I know I, that, I, but I you travel do, all over. Yeah, I yeah. travel very much in, extensively in China. I think that uh, people eventually, yes, you are right, they have been accustomed to this sort of uh, exponential growth, whereby the GDP maintained uh, constantly for 8% for almost a decade. But now when you're talking about slowdown or whatever, we are talking about still 6.7%, 6.5%, and mind you, that is very good. Investment wealth or like in Hong Kong, we are talking about only 2% or 3%. Positive, right? Some country got a negative, <laughs> right? So if China works for such a large country, and in the long term, if China can maintain, say, somewhere around 5%, it's already doing very good for a, such a large country. So I think uh, uh, Chinese people will get rich or has a substantial improvement in the quality of life in the last two decades, they got to learn or to understand that sunny day is not a norm. They got to be sometimes they are rainy days. And also because in China, a lot of Chinese also got a lot of rich, rich individuals. But compared with China, China is still a very poor country. If you talk about the GDP on average, China is still quite poor, far from a rich country. Although you can see, you can see rich Chinese people go to New York, go to Hong Kong, go to London to buy a lot of things, you know. Uh, but it is not the case. So that's that's very true and i've seen that myself is there an issue about all the poor people who now have knowledge about what's going on not only in the rest of china but in the rest of the world is their impatience with trying to share in that economy going to have an impact um the general public not percent of the people living in the rural area i think if they they should know that or they should understand that their life, quality of life, has been improved in the last 20 years. And that is a fact. Everybody got their division. A lot of them got their own motor cars or motor bikes, at least. Huh? And then uh, they got machinery to farm their land. And then living condition in China as a whole, although a lot of them are still quite poor, but you must admit that it has been improved quite a lot in terms of living condition, medical, and education. Now, there are still a bunch of real challenges, and they're the ones you just listed. Uh, healthcare is better, but not good enough. Yes. yes. Uh, the air pollution is a concern. Air uh, pollution in some, in northern China, is a concern, industrial area. But in the other area, it's not so bad. 
So people are, however, voicing their opinions about some things. We read about uh, people getting fairly vocal about, about pollution, for example, and it looks like the government has been attempting to make an approach about fixing that. Do you have a sense of, is that in response to people's outcry, or is it pretty much because that's the plan? Well, I think compared with the Chinese history, not Communist China after 1949, the Nationalist government, or the dynasties. At the present moment, I think the current Chinese government listened quite a lot more to the people compared with the past 4,000 years. Then that is a fact. You know, right now people, they got internet, the exchange of information is so quick and you cannot, and you cannot hide lies. You, you cannot lie, you know. The facts the surface to the general public in a relatively short time. Transparency, is the, transparency. is the key. Uh -huh. And then people, instead of like the old days, you have like a hundred years ago, you have to go to see the emperor to lock on his door, <laughs> or go to the government office to lock on the door. Now they don't have to. They just post up onto the internet. And millions and millions of people know and respond or support your course. It's pretty phenomenal. Yeah. Now, we, let's talk a little bit about innovation. You mentioned China over the centuries, and it's true that we know that China was highly advanced at, at, at a number of different stages in its history. It's where gunpowder was developed and invented and many, many other things. What about now? We know that there's Tencent, there's Alibaba, there's some very innovative companies, but is there a difference in the way the Chinese look at innovation itself as a process from the way it's looked at in the West? <clears throat> I think uh, when we say innovation, a lot of people tend to focus on computer-related, internet-related things. And we must admit that yes, the computer, internet, change our lifestyle quite a lot, like Alibaba or Amazon. Uh, eBay, you know. But uh, if you talk about technologies, are you, uh, technology is a very wide term. We, technology should not just be focused on internet and computer related things. We, like medical, engineering, defense, health, and you know, these are all regarding technology. And then this certainly would somehow related to computers, but it is not computer-led. It's innovation in a much broader sense. Yes. Innovation must be a broader sense if you are talking about to improve the quality of life of the human race are concerned. Actually, that, that, that is an interesting point, that for some people, innovation means something simply being improved that there's an evolutionary prospect or perspective to innovation. Whereas some people, especially in the West, think it has to be highly disruptive. It didn't even occur before. My sense is, looking at what's come out of China in the last number of years, 
that they have a much broader sense of innovation, that it has more to do with, as you say, improving life itself or improving things that are going on rather than having to be totally new and disruptive. So where is all the innovation going to come from in China if we think that it's important for its growth to be innovative and not simply copying the West as it did some decades prior? So where is this innovation going to come from? Is it going to come from the educational system? Is it going to come from the people that are educated in the West and return home? What's your thought? Well, we come from many ways. Uh, first of all, uh, innovation is the, the first one. You must have the human capital. When you say human capital, you're talking about education, about invest in the human, uh, in, in, in the human, in research, you know. And also the other thing is copycat. <laughs> Why spend so much time? Why don't you just jump, buy the technology, and then use that more technology and improvise on that level, rather than you see, you know, rather than you uh, invented start, from the beginning. Invented from, mm -hmm. from the beginning. So I think that. Um, uh, if you want to improve on your, your, your technology or scientific things, this is like the two areas. First of all, you must have um, the financial resources or, or resources from the, uh, from the society or the human capital and then, or then or buy the technology. So, do you, do you, so I sense that you're saying that China is well poised to it's be well-poised, well-positioned yes. to increase its own innovation yes, I, uh, using that broader definition. I think, of course, and, and then because, um, because China technology drive is way behind for 500 years, and China got to catch up. Different from the Western countries, like England. England has got very good, or Germany, got a very good technological background for at least for the last 300 years. China has been behind since the Ming Dynasty. Well, it's pretty fast moving now, though. I mean, if you look yes. at a company like Alibaba, it's extraordinary. Yeah. And if, if people can say, well, you know, well, the... I say Alibaba, Alibaba is only one thing. It's only internet thing. You're internet right. sometimes is easy because you just get a group of very good programmer and think about logging in the room, but they are something like medical, like like, like medical engineering. You cannot lock a doc, lock a few doctors into the room and let them to 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 invent something, right? So to a certain extent, the technology on the other area perhaps may be more difficult, like aerospace technology, right? Although they they only computers back them up, but the main trust will be the professional in that particular field, supported by computer. That's a that's a strong point. So. So many uh, Chinese being educated in the West, I would yes. imagine, just helps fuel yes. the, 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 yes. the flame of what can be possible. So what about the pressure around privacy issues? In the West, everybody now has a big thing about their data and yes. protecting themselves. And I don't sense that that's so true in China. So am I. Sometimes, like this is my personal, uh, my personal um, opinion, I think the uh, Western uh, theory on privacy sometimes a little bit overdone. Now, for example, when we advertise for a job in a newspaper, we are not allowed to ask for a photo. We are not allowed to ask for their age. 
we are not allowed to ask for their sex. So as an employer, sometimes we do need to, to do something which is not a discrimination or not is a privacy, but we got to know whether this guy or this lady would be able, physically would be able to do, they, to fulfill the, uh, this job, right? So, low sex, no, sir, no, sorry, low gender, no photo, no age, right? Then you, then we will have to spend time to interview this particular. Now you're candidate. talking about Hong Kong and and the West when you say that, right? I don't That's... know. I don't know how we operate in the West. I think different countries would have their own different privacy law. I'm just talking about in Hong Kong. I think it's a little bit overdone. Overdone, and it's not true in China, is it? I don't think so. I don't think so. China is a little bit better <laughs> in, in, in this particular issue. I would rather follow the Chinese way, the Chinese government's way, rather than the way that Hong Kong is now adopting. It's interesting, too, because at least my view or my perception is that because of um, the history of China over the last several decades, that China really doesn't discriminate about women. They've got women oh, in all sorts of jobs. So it's kind of in, it's sort of an irony here that we work so hard in the West it's, and in Hong Kong. As far as sexual discrimination concerned China, I think it's the lowest compared with Hong Kong or whatever. I mean, it's fascinating, isn't today, it? Today, today, yeah, men and women are the same. Well, and they even dress the Except in some particular cases whereby the physical strength of a male is more important. Like soldiers fighting in the front line or firefighters which have to carry heavy weight or to carry the, to rescue people. Sometimes they would prefer um, men because of the need rather than discrimination. So Edgar, it's, it seems to me from our conversations is that you have a real sense of optimism about China and its future. What's the biggest source of your feeling of optimism? Well, the, uh, it's not the optimism. Uh, uh, China is always, if you look at the history of 4,000 years, China has got a cycle. Always they will be a superpower for 600 and 700 years, and then they will they would be very, very weak for the 200 years, and then they would come again in a cycle. The 200 years of trouble start around in 1800, and so it should end at year 2000. So China should be on the way up to, as, to resume as a superpower for the next 500 years. So that is a historical trend, and also because China basically, China's uh, they got a lot of people, and then basically the people, the Chinese people, are, they like to be educated. They respect scholars. And Chinese people are also quite obedient. They respect the emperor. Now we don't have emperor, right? They, they respect the government. And they respect leadership. And that's still true. That is, I mean, that is Chinese nature. We never argue with our father. Mm -hmm. My father say yes, normally you won't say no, or you will try to say, hey, Dad, perhaps you should try this, but it's a way so well. You, you may just call your father, hey, John, I don't like this. Now, that is the culture. So, being that if, if China have the weak, the reason of China weak for 200 years, if you look at history, 
is because the government failed. If the government would be able to control and give good governance, China can always be strong because it got a lot of resources, whether human or natural. So what will the biggest challenges be? One you've just stated, if the government can keep the lid on all this, this huge population and the very fast-moving ability they have to communicate with yeah. everybody everywhere. What will the other challenges be? What specifically is a problem? Is it population? Is it health care? Is it pollution? All of the above? I think, I think population is, would be a big problem. Not for, not for China, for the whole world. Because if you are talking about pollution, uh, success, uh, substantial, or, uh, um, sustainable, sustainable uh, environment. Environment? Why? Because we got too many, too many people on the earth itself. When I was young boy, I remember the uh, total number on earth is. Uh, 20 billion? It's, a bit, it's two, 2 billion. Right? Now I think it's, it, it is, I think it's, it's in almost 70 billion. Now imagine if everybody, uh, everybody like to improve their uh, quality of life. But the consumption, if you look at the uh, statistics, the consumption of a human being of a man or woman in America, in Europe, and in Asia, and in Africa, there is a very wide margin, wide difference. Now, if everybody in China, in uh, Africa, they want to come to close to the American way of life, okay, come to 70%, I think our current resources on earth would not be able to achieve this. So I think the major problem of pollution or whatever is that we should control our population. And then we should also have a long-term look at that. Don't just look at Europe, Japan or the advanced countries stand up living. You have to look into the whole world, like Nigeria. Nigeria, I read an article saying that they will have, be having a very substantial increase in the population in the next 10 or 20 years. Now imagine if the whole Africa would become a, a Nigeria. And this population, they all are longing to have a quality of life, 70% of the Americans. Oh. And we will have big trouble and we will have war fighting each other and killing each other. Well, it certainly brings to mind the fact that we have to approach these problems with real innovation because whatever we've got right now isn't going to sustain it. You're yes. absolutely right about yes. that. Are there any other issues that you'd like to mention around this whole arena of East meets West? Anything that comes to mind that you think is especially important? Well, I think East and the West, I think uh, it should be the way to go. We are now going to globalization or a global village, right? Eventually, uh, eventually there may be only Right now, we've got more than 150 countries in the world. I think eventually they follow that the, 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 the number may be reduced to 10. Now in China, we used to have a seven or eight, eight different countries, and then we united it together around 2,000 years ago in the, in the Qin Dynasty.
Well, it certainly. It seems that EU, EU eventually, I think it may become one country as Europe. That's a fascinating thought because we see that young people, especially with their use of the internet, many of them have become, in their mind, global citizens. They really don't think about geographic borders yes, yes, the yes, way we do. Yes. So there's something anachronistic about this whole uh, dependence on uh, nationalistic geography, and so I, I think that's going to be a very interesting <coughs> yeah, conversation I think, I think for the future. Perhaps in a hundred years, there will be no more Canada. Canada and the United States will combine together. On, in, in, in South America, the Spanish-speaking country and the Portuguese-speaking country, Portuguese country is only one, but still, yeah, perhaps all the other uh, Spanish-speaking country will become one, become one country. Well, certainly there'll probably be, and there should be more uh, real interaction in terms of economy, yeah. um, sharing educational facilities, healthcare yeah. issues, because some of these issues, especially the environment, they're too big for one country. Nobody can solve this alone. It's, it's just not possible. Well, once again, it was terrific to talk with you, Edgar. It's such a delight to share your perspectives. If this is the first time you're listening to Asia and the West podcast, please subscribe on your podcast app of choice. There are plenty more conversations with fascinating people from where this came. And please rate and review us on iTunes. As you may know, iTunes gives credit to reviews and ratings, and the more credit we get, the more people can discover us. And please tell your friends. Word of mouth is a powerful way to spread the word about the Conversation 360 podcasts and this Asia and the West series. And there is more information on our website, www.conversation360podcast.com. The show's Twitter handle is at Conv360Podcast. That's C-O-N-V-360Podcast. My personal Twitter is at Susan W. Bird, spelled B-I-R-D. And thanks for listening. <laughs>